What's up, everyone? My name is Philip Hensler. And I'm Adam Richmond. And we're your co-hosts for today's PATHS Technology Committee podcast. We started this podcast to initiate a conversation with the members of the athletic training community in Pennsylvania in the hopes that we can engage and foster relationships in the state, explore emerging settings, and provide a unique perspective into the day in the life of an athletic trainer. <laughs> Today, I want to thank our guest, Katie Barr, for sitting down with us and chatting about athletic training. Katie, welcome to the Pats Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? We're doing great. So I met Katie when she was a student in the athletic training program at Duquesne University. That was back in 2012. Uh, she graduated from Duquesne the following year, uh, magna cum laude, earning her BS in athletic training. She also stayed on to earn her doctorate in physical therapy from Duquesne in 2016 and has been traveling around the country treating uh, athletes and clients. Um, she's worked on projects like USA Taekwondo on top of her clinic work. Um, Katie, thank you for joining us again. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your uh, background and uh, your um, um, current working areas. Sure, so um, like you said, I went to Duquesne for um, what felt like forever from 2009 until August of 2016. Um, I knew early on, or I guess I thought early on, I wanted to be a physical therapist. Um, and I went for an interview when I was in high school um, to have an internship at a physical therapy clinic. And they asked, you know, what I was most excited about for the year. And I said, I was most excited to be on the sidelines and respond to injuries right when they happened. Um, and they all looked at me and said, you know, that's not physical therapy. Um, and I didn't. And so that was the day that I learned what athletic training was um, and then started looking at programs that would let me kind of do both of those things. Um, and Duquesne was one of them. So I went to Duquesne in 2009, graduated in 2016 um, and was afforded the opportunity to do a little bit of traveling during that time as an athletic trainer. So I traveled with Phil some um, and I traveled with Bear Essential Sports Medicine to uh, different events around the country. And then my last clinical rotation in school actually afforded me the opportunity to work as an athletic trainer and a physical therapist um, in a pretty unique setting in Boise, Idaho. So I worked as an ATPT um, in a setting that was for emergency responders. So for police, fire, and EMS. Um, and we did uh, you know, kind of pre-year physicals for them. We did uh, emergency response. We were on site for some education. And then if anybody got injured on the job, we treated them in kind of a regular PT clinic. So um, that really was a nice way to kind of put all of my hats on at the same time. Um, after that, I moved to Virginia and I worked in a physical therapy clinic. Um, I tried my hand at management for like a year and a half after that um, and really wanted to go back to just straight clinical practice. And so now I get to work again as an ATPT um, in a clinic setting. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit? Um, tell us what your typical day look lo looks like now at, at the clinic. Sure. So um, before everything that is going on now happened, I worked uh, five days a week generally in um, uh, an interesting office setting. So we have three physical therapists on staff and we have three strength and conditioning specialists on staff. And we have 
two independent practices happening. So we have you know, regular run-of-the-mill physical therapy, primarily outpatient orthopedics, um, some post-operative stuff, some you know, just bumps and bruises, things like that. Um, and then we have a cash-based sports performance and strength and conditioning program run by our strength and conditioning specialists. Uh, but we also run an integrative practice. So if I have somebody who's coming back from um, you know, an ACL surgery, and would be appropriate to start to transition into some total body strength and conditioning, some sports performance um, that falls a little bit less under my PT umbrella. Um, we actually, as part of their PT services, can provide them with some programming and with some strength and conditioning by the other half of our staff, which is really nice. So we do that. Um, we do some clinics, like we do like runner's clinics, things like that, um, and then some event coverage also, which is nice. Oh, that's awesome. That so, sounds like a great job. So you're yeah. working as an ATCPT. Um, how do you handle the expectations between both professions, the overlapping responsibilities, and um, how does one help the other? What are you finding out be, being dual credentialed like that? So I think early on, it was really important for me to be able to explain to people what the difference was. Um, and I'm sure neither of you will find this surprising, but most often I was explaining what an athletic trainer was to people. People had a pretty good idea of what a physical therapist was. Um, you know, oftentimes I would tell people I was a PT and they'd be like, oh yeah, you know, my grandmother's in physical therapy. So there was a little bit of explaining kind of what, like that just PT is very diverse, um, but also explaining what athletic training was. And oftentimes I think that people assume that PTs can do the things that ATs do. Um, until we get them on sidelines, until we put them in environments that they're uncomfortable with. And then some of those differences are really highlighted. Um, from an emergency medicine perspective, I, I can tell you that um, I wouldn't be able to do any of, any of my sideline coverage with the knowledge that I garnered as a physical therapist. That all was from athletic training. Um, more acute stuff all falls under my athletic training hat. Uh, but also, it, so it's kind of the two tail ends of the rehab spectrum. So what happens before an injury and immediately after an injury, I was most prepared for with athletic training. Um, kind of what happens after that, physical therapy prepared before, but then still at the tail end, there are a lot of things that I, I wouldn't be able to adequately return people to sport or to performance or to whatever their um, maximal level of function is without my athletic training background. So the middle part is, is very important and, and um, that's when I feel like I'm wearing my physical therapy hat, but the extremes, the either side of those spectrums are mostly my athletic training. I've always thought that the two, the two degrees work really, really well together. Some of the, um, some of the best practitioners I've worked with have been dual credentialed, whether it's a DOATC, PTATC, um, or even the like EMS ATC or EMTATC. Um, it just seems like athletic training is a good kind of uh, jumping board to really get you prepared to um, to work with your clients as as a whole. You know, we we can we can treat them as a as a being instead of as an injury or as a condition. So that's that's one thing I've always I loved about athletic training. Yeah, that's huge. Absolutely. That I think, um, like you said, you know, athletic training in and of itself is an amazing profession, but using it as the foundation for some of these other things, it can only enhance your ability as a provider. You know what I mean? You just have a better understanding um, of, the, of the athlete, of the person, 
um, and what it is that they need to be able to do functionally. And with this big emphasis on, you know, on function and less so on some of these other objective measures, I think there is no profession that's better at that than athletic training. So Katie, with the, with the shutdown, with the virus going around, what have you guys been doing at your clinic? So our clinic is doing an amazing job of trying really hard to keep us employed in ways that um, are purposeful and that will matter to the clinic down the line. So we are involved in some educational committees right now. So we got to pick things that we found to be interesting um, or areas that we thought warranted some further research so that we can do a better job of treating patients. Uh, so one of the things that I'm pretty passionate about is uh, neuroscience and pain education. Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time kind of delving into the research on especially pediatric uh, pain education, how to educate children about different types of pain, um, atypical pain responses, you know, why sometimes people have pain that lasts beyond what we expect of them. How does that work? Yeah, so for me, I, um, I started seeing kids with complex regional pain syndrome unintentionally it was a thing where like I had one kid with a good outcome and so her referring physician was like oh most people hate these cases do you want to keep seeing them and honestly I didn't like it was so draining but I was still really new in my office and I felt like I needed to like I needed to um have somebody who believed in me like somebody sending me people yeah so, um it, that was like a trial by fire sort of thing I knew nothing about CRPS except for what I had learned in school and even that was like relatively outdated and mostly like it's workers comp people who don't want to get better, not like yep. what do you do if it's a 12 year old. Um, yep. And so because the kids started to get better, I thought it was interesting. And I did just like some really light research, but there's like, there's nothing. There's always like one case review that's like, oh, we used mirror therapy and it worked. Or like, oh, we used this and it worked. Um, so right now I'm just doing background to catch up to everybody else. Like I'm just watching all these Adrian Lowe Medbridge videos and reading whatever he's put out and then I honestly don't know what comes next <laughs> I'm a really bad committee member yeah no 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 worries uh, pain science is just um, you know a, a big topic right now and I was just curious what you guys are doing yeah. with it um, do you uh, do you do a lot of pain education then like pain science education with these with adolescents because I feel like that's a really big topic and to try to explain that to an adult is really difficult and to try to you know have that same conversation with a, an adolescent I feel like would be very challenging it's huge. And, and the thing is that it can't just be the kid. Like if this is one of the circumstances where I, I get really wishy-washy with like my 13 year olds, whether I want mom and dad back in their appointment with them, because sometimes you say like, okay, tell me how your pain is today. And mom's like, well, he's been feeling about a six out of 10. And, this, and I'm like, Ooh, like that. I understand why. Like I, and the thing is, I don't have any kids. So like, I certainly can't tell people how to parent their children, but that gets tricky. But when it comes time to start educating on hey, I know it hurts first thing in the morning when you get out of bed, but you can't stay in bed all day. Mom and dad need to be involved in that. Like that has to be a conversation that happens between multiple caregivers. Um, and sometimes it needs to be one-on-one -on -one ed just with the parent before we can introduce it to the kid. But what's interesting is the kids are almost more amenable to it. Like, and part of it is because the parents are always scared. They're like, why can't my 11 year old walk? <laughs> like why, yeah. why does the walking look like that? Um, and they just want to do what's right by their kid. And so they're throwing money at it, throwing doctors at it, um, throwing braces and whatever else they can. But the kid, if you if you give them some of those really basic analogies, like the, you know, if you put your hand on the stove, every time you see the stove after that, your brain knows like, oh, like we got alarms going off. And so sometimes 
that happens even when it's not a really painful thing. The kid is like, oh, that's like, that kind of makes sense. Like they don't, they don't need a ton of peer reviewed literature. They, they just need something yeah. that makes sense to them. Um, yeah. So finding the right words can be tough because I, I use a thousand words when three words will do. Like I'm just very verbose. And so yeah. that's <laughs> but um, the kid, like the kids are, they like, they want to feel better and they, they don't need you to like paint them a glorious picture. They just need, like why does it hurt what can i do to make it better yeah and do you do you get I, I, a lot of times when i try to have these conversations and and i need to work on on my verbiage and, and how i'm um, relaying the information but i get the so you're telling me it's all in my head and it's like the exact opposite of what i'm trying to tell them but it's always that so you're saying it's in my head and i'm like no that's not what i'm saying at all do you get that a lot or no yeah have you gotten better at it yeah so that like and again just because i'm drinking the kool-aid right now Adrian Lowe talks about that a whole bunch is how to teach pain science stuff. And the big thing is like, yeah, but that's where everybody feels pain. Like there are, there are no pain receptors in the body, right? We've got nociceptors that tell us this and we've got this that tells us that, but it's the same way that your eyes don't see things, your tissues don't feel pain. Your body processes all of that. And so yes, your brain is telling you that you have pain, but the pain doesn't necessarily equal tissue damage. You know, and so we just need to parse through that. So it, I used to be like, no, 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 it's not, it's not that, it's not that. But now I'm like, yeah, it's in your head, but that's where everybody feels it. That's where everybody's feeling it. Good it's, point. You know, how do we do something about that? Yep. No, that's awesome. And so you, you found um, that that is successful with the adolescents, um, the, the, the education. I mean, how big is the education piece to you and, and what else are you doing then? Is it, is it also like created exposure, you know, activities in, in the rehab process as well? So I um, am still, like, I, I wish that I could tell you I had, like, a great formulation for it. And I certainly don't want to say that I'm successful with 100% of these kids because I'm, I'm just not. Um, but one thing that I found that works, I don't start on day one with the ed, which I know, like, you know, a lot of people do. I, I try to, like, lay some foundation for it. But when somebody comes in and they've seen a thousand doctors, the last thing they want to hear is, like, it's all in your head. Um, you know, it, and we're not, you know, we don't need to do X, Y, and Z to fix it. Um, so what I like to do is give some type of novel stimulus on day one. And this, this garners me a lot of enemies, especially from evidence-based practice people. I like to use like either like a voodoo band or rock cloth, like something for some, some pretty heavy compression and have them move through some range of motion to either show like, hey, it feels exactly the same when I have this thing on or like, it feels different. It just feels something. I always tell yep. people it doesn't feel better or worse. It just needs to feel different. Um, I'll put, I'll do dynamic cupping. I'll put cups on and have them move. Just something different than what they're feeling is all I want to accomplish on day one to show them that we can change it. Because when they say I have eight out of 10 pain first thing in the morning, eight out of 10 pain right before I go to bed at night, eight out of 10 pain when I walk, like it just needs to be different. It doesn't need to be better. It doesn't need to be worse. It just has to be different. And so that's all I try to accomplish day one. Because um, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh is doing like the four hours, five days a week pain therapy thing, like where they, you know, try to brutalize you. And there's really good research to support it. But um, I don't know, I, I've seen two kids that have come out after it. So like, it works for a little bit. But that's the other thing that we need is like, how do we make it work long term? Yeah. And do you think, you said earlier that... Um you know, we're, we're, we're starting to see this more in the adolescence and, and obviously there could be multiple reasons. Um, one that I would feel be, would be prominent would be the fact that 
we do have more of a mental health issue in, in our younger population than what we would think in, in terms of, um, you know, the, the boomers or whatever we want to call the older generations right now. Um, you know, does that mental health piece play a huge role in, in your perception of pain? 100%. And I, I'm incredibly biased and Bill will tell you this. I, I, um, like my, my fiance is a, a pain or not a pain neuropsych, he's a neuropsychologist. So I, every single CRPS adolescent that I'm seeing, I'm also referring to someone. And there's a, there's a really great pediatric neuropsych, Jessica, who lives in like relatively close to my area. And so I'm trying to foster a relationship with her because I think that, I think that's a, a factor 100% of the time. I think that even if it wasn't, again, even if they, you know, they sprained their ankle early on and whatever, now they're dealing with like, well, coach wants to know why my ankle sprain took longer than so-and-so's, that gets put in their head. I can see that my mom is really nervous about why we have to go to nine doctors and she didn't like Dr. So-and-so, so we went to Dr. Somebody else and she's got to take time off court. Like they internalize so much of that. So even if it wasn't an original component, because that's a lot of these kids get this reputation for like, you know, like fakers and, and malingerers and, you know, they're in the ATR all the time. Um, and some of that is absolutely fueled by what they're seeing around them and how people are talking about it around them. Um, and so, they, yeah, they're like, I, there are things that I are so out of my scope um, and there are people who are really, really good at that. And so I think having a, a really good referral network around you is the other thing that you need to be successful with these kids. It's going to be great if we had four hours to sit down and you know, download headspace and talk about, you know, anxiety at school. But I, even if I had the time for it, I'm not the right person for it. So. Yep. No, I, I just find the exact same thing though. It's it, every, every chronic pain patient that I have is also either already diagnosed or probably should be diagnosed with some type of anxiety or depression. Um, and, 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 you know, it's just the chicken or the egg. I, I'm not sure which came first, but there's definitely a relationship there and treating the whole body and treating the mind is, as well as part of the body, I think is huge. So um, I can, I I can do the whole the... episode on pain science. I, I love that stuff. <laughs> See, and that's this, this is why I wanted Katie to come on because she has her hands yeah. in so much. Every time I talk to her, there's a new topic, a new little micro nuance that she could just talk on for hours. And it's, it's always exciting and always gets me, gets me thinking about things I can do with my athletes. Like, just like right now, I have a, um, I have a worksite guy who, you know, he's having some issues. He's not getting better. It's something underlying there. And I, I haven't been able to figure it out. And I, I think, I think you might've just fixed them. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to check out those uh, Medbridge videos and see if I can't bring something to work on Wednesday. I think science is just not well understood, especially in athletic training. Um, I, I, I hate to say that cause I am an athletic trainer and, um, you know, love my profession but I, sometimes i think we we get so caught up in the the nuances of the the newest rehab exercise coming out and, and really forget about the the mental part of pain and, and how it is a perception and not just you know like you said before there's no pain receptors in our bodies so yeah we could talk about that for a while yeah what else do we want to talk <laughs> about guys a couple cool things that i think katie's done um She's uh, started an AT coverage program at the high school level, uh, unaffiliated with any other hospital system uh, in the Pittsburgh area. And I think it would be really cool to see how, or talk about how she went and got physicians to, um, uh, to sign standing orders and what, um, um, all just the ONA stuff, budgeting, the insurance, liability, 
um, setting boundaries, expectations? How do you go about um, um, telling that or uh, relaying that to your client and setting up a solid business unit? Um, I don't know, Katie, is that, would that be appropriate to talk about? Do you have enough on, do you have some on that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I, um, I always thought that coming out, like because Pittsburgh is so heavy with, you know, these monopolies in healthcare, I never thought that I would get to do it, but I also never thought I'd have to do it. I thought I would just fall into something someone else had created. Um, and I sort of had, I got a phone call my first year in PT school that there was a local high school that needed some coverage and could I, um, could I cover, I think it was a soccer game. Um, and so I said, sure, that was great because at that point, all I was doing was event coverage because I was a full-time student. And so I went out to the high school, the athletic director met me, um, I covered the soccer game and then they uh, passed on my information to a local private practice. It was a PT company that was owned by a PT and an athletic trainer. Um, and they had actually been looking, I can't, I can't quite remember the details, but they, they hadn't been looking for somebody to cover the school, but the school had reached out to them and because they were relatively new. They thought it'd be a good way not to generate revenue, but like to get people to know who they were. So like the classic athletic training model, if I'm on the sidelines, somebody gets hurt, I can refer them to this practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't care much about that. I just, I wanted to I wanted to be involved in athletic training and it was getting harder and harder to do while I was in school. So the, that company actually contracted for, I want to say like a season and a half and then they got purchased and they dissolved their contract and they were like, yeah, we don't, you know, we don't want to be involved in this anymore. But at that point um, I had gotten invested in these kids. Like I, you know, I had covered a season and a half of sports and um, I could see how much they needed someone, just like every high school needs someone, you know, the amount of kids that had been, you know, just dealing with things and not, and had no one to talk to about it, or like, you know, they're going to the primary care doctor for, um, you know, and then getting referred to orthopedics or whatever, but just kind of going through this, this trial when athletic training was the right thing that they needed. And so I asked, I was like, you know, are you guys going to come after me if I try to make something out of this? Um, and they couldn't have cared less because for them, athletic training doesn't generate revenue and I was in competition and, you know, they weren't worried about it. So I went to the athletic director and I said, hey, listen, you know, they've, they've decided to terminate this contract, but I still want to be here. What can we do? <clears throat> and at that point, one of the large hospital systems had reached out to them because they saw a vacuum and they thought, you know, maybe they could swoop in. Um, but the decision was made that, again, they wouldn't be worth it. They wouldn't generate enough revenue for it to be worthwhile. And so the hospital system withdrew their contract or their offer. Um, and so I had like, I want to say, whatever the, whatever the break between my last spring sport and my first fall sport, that was how much time I had to make this feasible. Because at that point, I was terrified of all litigation of all kinds because that had been drilled into your head so much during undergrad. You know, we have this job that, um, we have all these skills and all these things that we can do, but only in a certain circumstance and only with the right, you know, person signing this and that. And um, I had only ever done event coverage where things were already laid out for me. I just showed up and generally I didn't even have to show up with stuff. Like I just showed up and somebody threw a bag at me and was like, how about it, do your job. And so. Um, Don't let anybody die. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a bag. Don't let anybody die. You're good. And so I, um, <laughs> 
I started calling around to physicians. And at that point, um, my athletic training, my, my second to last clinical rotation when I was in high school, or when I was in high school, when I was in college, was at a high school and had um, introduced me to the notion of, of team physicians that weren't with big hospital systems, that were independent practitioners. Um, and so I knew there were physicians that might be amenable to this. And so I started just cold calling doctors saying, hey, you know, my name is uh, nice. Katie Barr and I am looking to build an athletic training program at the school. Um, and after the first three, I realized that it sounded like a terrible sales pitch. Like I was asking these people like, hey, can you, without meeting me and knowing anything about who I am, just be totally liable for every choice that I make, you know, in, in this high school setting. Yeah. And so I started writing up standing orders, bringing them to offices and saying, hey, you know, this is what an athletic trainer does. This is what the school needs. Um, you know, would you be willing to get involved? And yeah, that Katie, did you, did you find a lot of issues um, when you started that with, with, did doctors even know what athletic trainers were? Did you have to, like, how, how much did you even have to just explain, like, this is an athletic trainer, this is the role, this is how this relationship works? It absolutely made me master my elevator pitch. Because uh, like I said, I, I use a thousand words when three words could do. And when you're cold calling <laughs> people, that's not an option. You know, they don't, they don't care about, you know, the history of athletic training and how it all started and this and that. They want to know what you're asking of them and why. And so explaining to a physician, you know, as, as the athletic trainer, I would be the first line responder. I'd be on the sidelines for these things. I'd be able to triage some patients and the patients that aren't appropriate for my management might need to end up in your office. You know, they might need to end up with you or X, Y, and Z and, and trying to explain what that looks like. But also the physician needed to know what their involvement was going to have to be. You know, do I have to come to these games? Do I like, do I have to show up to things? Am I signing off every piece of paperwork that you do? Um, that, that also was tricky because I didn't know the answer to a lot of those questions, you know, and all the time we're told, read the practice act, read the, pra it's not written in verbiage that I, like, I'm pretty smart and I, I can't just sit down and read the practice act. So I think that that can be a really daunting task. And it was, it certainly wasn't something that I could hand to a physician and say, oh, these are the things that legally I'm allowed to do. So getting the elevator pitch down was huge. And then just figuring out you know, how to show that this was a necessary commodity to the community. And that was how I was trying to sell it. Because it, again, it wasn't going to be revenue generating for a physician. Um, if anything, it was going to make work for them. And so I needed to explain why we were going to do this. Um, and I, I was surprised eventually that, that somebody actually consented to do it. And we sat down and um, it gave me a lot of power over what I wanted in my standing orders, you know, what I was comfortable with. Um, because originally I was like, oh, I can pull whatever I want in here. You know, Katie's reducing elbows and hips and whatever. And um, it was much more, it also required me to take a look at like, what am I comfortable with? What is appropriate in this setting? You know, what are the things that um, if it comes to a court of law, I'm going to be able to justify why I thought these were appropriate things to include in here. Um, so it also required me to get better at documentation because I had to create my own documentation because I was a first year grad student. I couldn't afford, you know, ATS or whatever system to document and um, outside of having some physician support legally, it really, I, I was on my own. Um, and that was the other big hurdle was that they had never had an athletic training program before and it was in a very, very small high school. There was no budget. So I had a lot of donated supplies that I had like accrued over the years. Um, and the first two seasons, I paid for everything. Um, and it, it was tough. Like it was, you know, it was 
uh, not ideal, but at the end of that, I had my meeting with the boosters. I met with the boosters once a season just to review things. And at the end of that, I said, you know, here you, you, you've kind of seen that I've, I've proved my worth. Um, and some of that came from just, you know, basic care, just being there. They, they saw me at games. They knew who I was. And some of it came from like people having to see me at times they didn't want to. We had two elbow dislocations in basketball that year. And so, you know, being able to provide some comfort in those terrible times probably is what made them amenable to them at that booster meeting, giving me a thousand dollar budget. And I felt like after having zero dollars, I felt like, what, what do you even do with all this money? You know, like just think of all the brand name gloves I could buy. Um, and hey, yeah, I got a question. I, got, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, I, I'm, maybe I missed this at the beginning. Um, and, and I just, so were you, was were you then acting as an independent contractor or were you hired through the school? No, and that was also really tricky was, am I a school employee or am I an independent contractor? And we actually started right. on the school employee path. So we started with, you know, the background checks and um, uh, it, it had a, like a religious affiliation. And so some of like, some of the paperwork also required that. And, you know, yeah. we submitted all this paperwork and HR was like, you know, we don't think this is going to be appropriate because I was going to be knocking right on 30 hours. Um, and they didn't want to get into a situation where they were illegally not providing me benefits mm -hmm. and, you know, it's like things that I had never thought of from that perspective. Um, so we ended up going the independent contractor route, okay. which I, I, I was kind of prepared for because I had been, because I had been doing event coverage, I had been carrying a pretty large um, professional liability coverage for yeah. independent contractors since I had graduated. So I, to me, it was just like, I need to be really good about how I manage my taxes that year. <laughs> but yeah. Um, nothing else changed from like a workflow perspective. Right. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's a huge liability to take on yourself. I mean, it's one thing event coverage, right. But to take on the liability as an independent contractor for an entire school like that, that, that was a lot to, to take on. Um, so yeah, so you were, you were contracted as an independent contractor. So you went out personally as Katie Barr found doctors to sign off on your SOP and just, built this whole department on your own that that's amazing it sounds it, it sounds like you know this this big thing now but at the time it just seemed like you know ticking one like it, I, I felt like I had a to-do list right I can't be an athletic trainer without you know these standing orders and an emergency action procedure for the places that we're going to work and so I've got to do those things first and once we have a physician on board you know how do we realistically make this work and some of that was like sitting down between a volleyball coach and a soccer coach and saying, Hey, if you're going to have practice at the same time on Monday, uh, you know, I'm only going to be able to be at one of them. So how are we going to decide, you know, where, where I'm sitting and what we're doing. And um, if somebody needs me on a day that I'm not here, what's appropriate contact? Like that I know Phil mentioned early on, you know, what are boundaries? And that was really hard for me. I, that's always been hard for me. I feel like, um, and being an athletic trainer is always a role of service, right? Nobody's getting into this for the glamour and all that kind of stuff. And so you always want to be available in a way that's appropriate, but you have to find a way to do it that's not going to drain you and, that, and that's appropriate. You can't give high schoolers your cell phone number and say, you know, call me at 10 p.m. on Saturday if something doesn't feel right. Like, right. that's just, that's, it's never going to, it's never going to be cut and dry and simple, but there, there have to be some rules, some standards. So how many, how many sports did you have? And did you have football and wrestling and men's lacrosse? Football, no wrestling. So, okay. um, nice. and the other thing nice. that was interesting, my, 
So they actually added sports while I was there. So the school actually grew some while I was there. So I started with men's and women's soccer and volleyball in the fall, uh, men's and women's basketball in the winter, which also included our uh, cheerleading team, which cheered both at basketball games and they also had two competitions during the year. Um, and then in the spring, I want to say I'm missing. So there, there was track and field and cross country in these events also. Um, yeah. And in the spring, I used to have nothing. And then they added a baseball team and actually built a, a diamond, which was very cool. Uh, but there were no lights. So all of my stuff was daylight stuff until we started playing away, which um, was interesting. And then we had, so we had kids were, because it was a small school, kids were allowed to play football at a neighboring school. Um, and so those kids obviously still had access to me whenever they needed it. Um, I, I want to say, when it was all said and done, I want to say there were nine varsity sports year round that I was taking care of, which is obviously compared to, you know, some, some schools is quite small, but um, it was, it was yeah. kind of perfect. So that, that's, that's cool. Um, can you, so again, going back to the, sorry, I'm circling back to the, the independent contractors part. So the school district is it, can I call it a school district or this was a private school? It's a private. So the private school paid you a lump sum or they paid you hourly? Hourly. So you were paid hourly. How did you determine how many hours you were going to work per week? So it was the needs of the program relative to my school schedule. So they were very respectful of the fact that I was in grad school. Um, I want to say, again, I was generally between like 28 hours, depending on um, how many events were going on at any given time. And then, you know, there were dry weeks and there were heavy weeks. Um, and that was the other really interesting thing was that I had done right, something similar to this with somebody else overseeing it with that you know the the private practice overseeing it um and it was really interesting to see what i was paid because the money that the school paid per hour didn't change but the money that i took home between year one and year two was significantly different because you know it was coming to me and not There's no, yeah no metal man right exactly so um yeah i would say so they, they just had an hourly rate that they had agreed on that was remarkably fair especially given you know given that it was pittsburgh Good. um and I, I got bi-weekly checks and it just kind of went that route. Um, and like you said before, then you're responsible for taxes and um, you know, all, all that accounting stuff that you would have to, as an independent contract. Cause I'm not sure a lot of athletic trainers, like we, we like to um, you know, work coverage events and stuff here and there. And, and I think the rule is what, if it's under $600, like you're, you're clear, but um, I think that's an important note for people who are looking into getting into something like this, that you are responsible for, for all that type of accounting stuff. And I'm not going to pretend like I know all of it, but um, definitely a, a key point you want to be aware of. Um, TurboTax actually has a really great paid option for independent contractors. And so in, it was either 2014 or 2015, I had, three W-2s and two 1099s from four different states. And I was just certain that I was going to jail that year. Like I was 100% sure that I was robbing the United States government. They were coming for me. I was like, just take whatever, like whatever TurboTax says you need, you know, it's, it's all good. Um, but there's, there's, yeah, there's, I, I don't know anything about any of that, but yeah. there are some really nice tools and always really smart people. You know what I mean? At Duquesne, they have an accounting program, so find yeah. yourself a nice accounting friend, sort of deal. Yeah, so, Katie, another, you're uh, you're starting to sound a little bit too much like me there. 
um <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm back to the the hourly wage and i'm just curious so like this is i love this so i'm i'm just curious how you broke this all out um so obviously you're getting paid for your, your hourly wage for your your event co coverage did you charge them for the hours you spent developing the emergency action plan and getting these doctors and all the hours that you spent doing other things outside of of the um actual vet coverage that's a great question and the answer is no um i because it was it like a transition period i felt almost like that to, that to me was a job interview and before i say anything else about this i think that it's really important that i might that I make my stance clear on the fact that athletic trainers are often taken advantage of we often are asked to do things for less money than we are worth and than we deserve um and if i was who i was now absolutely not i would never do that but at the time it it a was a challenge it was can i do this you know if i do this successfully in this low stakes sort of situation where worst case scenario, I just don't get the job, um, then I, I know I can do it later on. And it, it, to me, that was about personal growth and development. It was a job interview. It was me proving to them, I am who you need for this role. And it's not going to be additional work on your back to get it done. You know, I'm going to be able to do this thing on the, on the tail end. So no, that was all, you know, stuff that I did over summer break from school in between classes and, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes sense, you know, and, and you're, you're, you're trying to, to, to build a business and, and sometimes you have to, to do things that aren't paid whenever you're trying to do a small startup like that. Um, but that was my next question as well. Then you, you kind of alluded to it, but, you know, looking back at what you did and, and where you are now in your, your career, what would you do differently that would have maybe made some of these um, uh, you know, points of emphasis a little bit smoother? That's a good question. Um, I, whew. I think I might have gone to the boosters department earlier about getting a budget in place. Um, because that first year, again, I, I, I don't know if it's like faux pas to talk about money. I would say $33 an hour, which again, very reasonable wage. Yeah. Um, the first season and change that went almost exclusively to supplies. You know, that, that was, you know, boxes of tape and this and that. And so um, the, on the tail end of that, once I had a $1,000 budget in place, that $33 wage felt huge. You know, it felt, it felt appropriate. It felt reasonable. Um, and I wasn't using it to put back into the program. I was using it to you know, buy groceries and pay rent and things like that. So um, I might have gone to boosters earlier, but I also, I, I don't know that my argument would have been as strong then I don't know that I would have gotten the same support at that time because that first, it, 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 when I say that, you know, the, the calling the docs and the EAP and stuff like that was the job interview, really that, I mean, that first semester that proving to them that I could do this job without the oversight of a private practice company that like, it was just a prolonged job interview. Um, and I, I stayed at that job for, you know, three years and change until my last clinical rotation took me to, um, Idaho for uh, school. So like I, like, yes, it, it was a chunk of time that, you know, I, I was putting all this extra work and things like that, but they took very good care of me for a long time after that. And that program still existed. I was able to pass on kind of what I had created to um, another athletic trainer that was in PT school at Duquesne, who then could just kind of fall into that role afterwards. 
No, that's cool. So basically you, you like the process, but maybe during the negotiation, um, either a, a bigger hourly wage, just because that, that, that hour, what it sounds like to me is that hourly wage also included budget. Like you didn't have a budget. So therefore you had to pay out of your pocket. Um, did you, what, what, what were you able to offer with that budget? It's like, so like, let's, let's say you, you before you got the thousand dollar budget, what were you offering? Were you taping ankles every day? Like what, what, what types of, um, was it more, you know, emergency care? Like I'm only here for, you know, first aid and, and some, some minor rehab. Can you go into that a little bit of detail? Yeah. And it's, it's not going to be, <laughs> yeah, I, I did everything. I taped ankles. I taped visiting teams ankles. Um, you know, I, I bought ice bags, wow. I did things where I could, um, I, when they say tape expires, like that is, a, I think, a joke to any athletic trainer that's had to work off of this kind of budget before. So like, I, there was a lot of bang, borrow and steal in what I was doing. Um, and Phil can tell you, I am just aghast when people are like, oh, my roll of tape is finished with a solid, like, you know, half inch of tape left on it. Like, that's just ludicrous to me. Why are we throwing away products? Like, <laughs> I don't throw it away. I don't throw it away, but I put it in the tape end. And then, you know, the football players that have to have the swag tape, that, that's their swag tape. If I, if I can, I mean, I, take I, it down I to the core, very, take it all the way to the core. I will say I am spoiled at my, my current setting. We do have a, I mean, we have a, it's not a large budget, but we have enough that we can afford to buy tape and I can use a fresh roll when I want to. I will, I am spoiled. I will say that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's no, super that was, cool. That was, yeah. For sure, for sure. Any other details you want to share with us? Um, so you, yeah, that that's that, that is something to really be proud of. Um, would you, I guess, would you advocate for for other people to do that? Like, do you feel like you know, with a few small tweaks here and there, what what do you see as being the advantage of of doing something independently like that versus through a, a larger larger corporation? So I'm gonna like make this a little bit circuitous, but I I um. Just remember when I was a Duquesne, I used to have people come in and talk to us uh, during our Duquesne student athletic trainer meetings. And it felt like the narrative often with good intention was like, you know, we as athletic trainers, you know, we can't be wearing khakis and backwards baseball caps. And, you know, we have to be this, we've got to do this and this and this, or otherwise people won't take us seriously. And we've got, I just kept feeling like people were saying that we had to fit in this very like specific narrow box. Some of it was litigation, you know, some of it was, um, you know, I, I think some of it was still coming off of this, like athletic trainers had been poorly defined previously, and now we need to, we need to define what we are so people can take us seriously. But I think it took away a lot of, I, I think one of the reasons why people don't understand what athletic training is, or they underestimate what athletic training is, is because we don't let ourselves do all the things that we can and should be able to do. You know, we, we, um, I feel like are often a little bit afraid to do those things. And so going independently makes you define what is my job? What am I comfortable doing? What's appropriate for me to do? But your needs assessment is also way different because there's no one to say, oh, well, this is always what we've done. You know, this is what we've done before. Um, and so you have to define who you are as an athletic trainer, what you are, and, in, and to a fresh audience, people who have no idea. And so I think that that is, is very powerful. Um, but also knowing the things that I know now and looking back, like it's kind of scary because I could have made countless mistakes that, that could have ended my athletic training career before it got started. Like I, I could have, you know, 
skipped over something in the EAP or, you know, not had something signed or um, thought I could do something and stepped outside of it too much. So like, it's this very fine balance between fully appreciating what we're capable of and what we can do and conveying that appropriately right. and, you know, not getting power hungry, not going crazy. Right. I think so that's I mean, well said. Yeah. And one, I think, did you listen to the Paula Tarosi podcast? Cause you, you echo her very much being, like knowing what you can do and, and making sure you can do it maximally. Um, but also just going back to the independent contractor, it just blows my mind. Like, you know, you don't really think about it until you would be in that situation, but um, not having that overarching, you know, general counsel and, and, and a big corporation to fight for you in that situation, if you would have any type of lit litigation um, would, you know, would, would probably keep me up at night a little bit, but that is really cool that you were able to do that. All right, Katie, um, as we start to wrap up here a little bit, we're going to go through what we call the lightning round. Um, these answers can be as long or as short as you would like them. Um, so I'm going to start with what would your dream job be if it's not the current one you have? I, I do. I love my job a great deal. I think my ideal job would be something where I'm more 50-50 split athletic training and physical therapy. Um, I am a very selfish provider. And so it's not uncommon that I'll discharge an athlete and then want to go, you know, watch them at their first at bat or, you know, watch them take their first nap or things like that. So I would love a job. Um, and I think, I think it would be probably with either one team or with, with multiple teams where I can do everything full spectrum rehab and full spectrum athletic training. Um, yeah, I think that would be the dream job. Yeah, I mean that that's the the highlight of seeing your athlete return to play on the first time or score that first goal after an injury is is why we do this, right? So when you get the when you miss that because you're stuck in the clinic, yeah, I could see that. That that's that's a good answer. I think one thing that we've seen throughout this whole podcast is you work, you're going constantly, you're going, going, going. What do you do for fun though? When you just step back, what do you do? Um, I love to read but i also really love to crochet and to knit and i think it's because i am going 1000 miles an hour so i like to slow it down as much as possible um with with some nice needlework <laughs> there you go uh that's great uh, so go a little bit deeper um what you've talked a lot about throughout the podcast as well. Like, like um, Phil said that, you know, just how busy you are and, and all the things that you're doing, um, you know, where do you find inspiration to do all this stuff? I think that I have been incredibly fortunate to be surrounded by people who are doing amazing things. Um, and I oftentimes, because that was how my like immediate post athletic training education went, I was surrounded by people who uh, were, were doing so much. I think I thought that that was fairly normal. I thought that was, you know, how people did things. Um, I think the other thing is that when you work really hard, you often are rewarded with other opportunities, other experiences. And, and early on coming from, you know, the background of an independent contractor, that was how I got other jobs. You know, it was, I, I was, I was out, people saw that I was doing good work. They threw me a business card said, Hey, you know, we have this event next week. Would you be able to cover it? And so hustling was the thing that paid my bills. And so um, it just felt like I was constantly rewarded for it. But that all that fire all came from seeing other people who were doing it really well and just trying to emulate that. Awesome. Katie, what does being an athletic trainer mean to you? We're going real deep on this one. Oh, yeah, that is deep. Um, so being an athletic trainer 
first and foremost is being a true resource to someone who has some type of need. Um, and I know that's super vague, but it, it you know, it, it's one thing, you know, it's, if, it's, if it's a clear need, you know, they, they fell down on, on the turf and they can't get up because, you know, their knee hurts or whatever, their need is obvious, your ability to fill that need is obvious. But, you know, with, with mental health, if you have an athlete who's in need because they feel like they can't talk to somebody else and, and you're the person who's been with them the most hours of their day outside of, you know, their coach and their mom and dad, you know, you become that resource. And um, I think, I think that's true kind of all facets and it speaks to the, the diversity of athletic training, but it also speaks to, you know, the, the service nature of being an athletic trainer. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I think that sums I, I, it up right there. We do. We get some, some really great answers in the lightning round. It might be one of my favorite parts of the show. Um, <laughs> And that was just another, <laughs> another, another excellent answer. Uh, well, Katie, um, you've been awesome to chat with today. And uh, I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to share your story with us. Um, if you don't mind, would you um, mind sharing some resources of where people may be able to reach out to you if they have any questions on, especially like the um, independent contractor piece and, and some of the other things that you've talked about today? Um, any emails or social media that you could share with us? Absolutely. That's, I, I would highly encourage anybody to reach out with any question, big or small. I, it, it's how I got to where I am. You can ask Phil how many times I emailed him after I got his business card for the first time. Um, and educating is one of my favorite things. So my um, email is kbarr212 at gmail.com. And um, social media, I'm kind of on Instagram, at K-A-T-B-A-R-R-212. It's almost exclusively athletic training pictures, so <laughs> at least that's pertinent. All right. Thank you, Katie. Um, and to the viewers, thank you for listening. Let us know what you think of this format or um, topics you might want to hear about on the podcast. Until next time, I'm Adam Richmond. And I'm Philip Hensler. And this was the Paths Podcast.